Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thanks for taking time to join us. Looks like all is not well in Trump world. To fully understand what's going on, we need to take one thing at a time. First, the Supreme Court said no to a request by the former guy to block release of White House records to the January 6th committee. While this may not be Trump's worst nightmare, it probably comes close. Essentially, the high court let stand the lower court ruling that getting to the bottom of the insurrection outweighed Trump's assertion of confidentiality of his records. Interestingly, that lower court ruling said their ruling would stand even if Trump were an incumbent president, a body blow to his claims of executive privilege. Personally, I never thought much of Trump's claim of an imperial presidency, and I'm not sure even this court ruling will sway either him or his followers from their belief the January 6th committee is engaged in a partisan witch hunt. As a matter of fact, that's what Trump says about just about everything where they're investigating it. It's a partisan witch hunt. Where it is, however, that the National Archives turned over most of the requested documents within hours after the ruling. It must be said that Donald Trump is, in baseball parlance, a deep slump when it comes to bringing cases before the Supreme Court. Remember, they dumped several attempts to negate the result of the 2020 election. And remember, too, the court contains three justices appointed by him. We should also keep in mind that the documents released to the January 6th committee won't be made public. However, one thing that's come to light is a draft order from Trump demanding the defense secretary seize voting machines. Thank God that never happened. The order was reportedly the brainchild of Sidney Powell, who I, I don't understand how she ever passed the bar, but she's an attorney and she's also a Trump lapdog. Currently, she's defending herself against lawsuits from voting machine companies. Now also comes the word that both New York Attorney General Letitia James and the January 6th committee both want to Trump, both want to talk, that is, to Trump's daughter, Ivanka. The committee wants to know about reports that Ivanka Trump pleaded with her father to do more to stop the January 6th insurrection. Her concern didn't last long, though. She held a lavish dinner party with her husband, Jared Kushner, the day after the coup attempt. It'll be interesting to see if Ivanka follows the lead of many other Trumpistas and defies a request from the committee to testify. On the other hand, Attorney General James in New York is examining the Trump Organization's business dealings. She's already reportedly documented a dozen instances when Trump allegedly misrepresented the value of his assets to receive favorable treatment from banks and other lenders. James wants to talk to the Trump daughter about an apartment on Park Avenue she leased at a fraction of the rent the public would have paid. Some of the instances James has documented could be viewed as hyperbole, something certainly connected to Donald Trump's name, over or underestimating the value of assets depending on which give them the best financial advantage. Spinning tall tales to lenders is quite another matter. While the AG's office is conducting a civil probe, Letitia James is also cooperating with a criminal probe being conducted by Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, yet another partisan witch hunt, according to Donald Trump. As you can see, here are a wealth of possibilities 
that could put almost all of the Trumps in a world of hurt. While his staunchest loyalists have stonewalled or out not defied the January 6th committee, it may not be so simple for family. Of course, Trump himself will argue that any and all explanations or explorations of his conduct or business dealings are simply partisan witch hunts. He seems to think he and anyone around him are above the law. When boxed into a corner, like he was back in 1975, when he and his father signed a consent decree promising to stop discriminating against blacks at one of their apartment complexes, Trump then, and probably will now, simply declare victory and turn his attention elsewhere. Yet the corner he's boxed into is a little bit more difficult this time around. If the January 6th committee does its job, Trump could face sanctions that would make it tough for him to run in 2024. Oh well, there are his fledgling social media sites to fall back on, right? While we're at it, Trump enabler and congressional butt plug Mitch McConnell is hurt. Hurt, he says, by allegations of racism hurled at him in the wake of the voting rights bill's defeat in the Senate. Mind you, McConnell voted for something very similar in 20, uh, 2006, that is, but oh, that was so long ago. Here's what the modern Mitch McConnell had to say when asked about the concerns black voters might have about going to the polls. Quote, well, the concern is misplaced because if you look at the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans. End quote. The remark promptly went viral on social media, and at the, as of the end of last week, the video of those words had been viewed almost a million times. So how does he respond? By saying the response to his word is hurtful, that people criticizing him for those remarks hurts him. He went on to say, and went on to use some of the my best friends are black defense, saying he hired black staff in senior positions. He said he accidentally left out the word all in front of Americans. I guess McConnell's altruism toward blacks wasn't enough to get himself and some Republicans on the side of a bill named after a man who put his life on the line so black people could vote. Too much to ask, I guess. Up next... Nicole Hannah-Jones, Martin Luther King, and a bit of white discomfort. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. You may remember the name Nicole Hannah-Jones. If you don't, you probably should. She was in the middle of a firestorm at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill after its board of trustees dithered in awarding her tenure. She instead went to Howard University, a major get for that institution. She used a brilliant tactic in a speech commemorating Dr. Martin Luther King at the Union League Club of Chicago. The first half of her speech, first half of her speech, quoted excerpts from his actual speeches, but she didn't tell the audience she was using his words until later in the presentation. She also substituted black for Negro in the speech so as to make it more contemporary. 
According to the Washington Post, some members of the audience were profoundly uncomfortable with what she said. Quotes from Dr. King, by the way. Her speech gave voice to some inconvenient truths about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy. 54 years after his murder, some people used selected edits of his speeches to define him. Parts of the I Have a Dream speech come immediately to mind. The speeches that tended to make whites uncomfortable in the 60s are almost never referenced. Almost never referenced. Neither are some of the ugly characterizations of him from that time. Among them, traitor, charlatan, demagogue, and certainly when he first got involved with the Montgomery bus boycott because he was from Atlanta, they called him an outsider, which was something that really hurt back in those days. Everybody was supposed to stay in their little cell or whatever it was. Now, this was abuse that was hurled at him by people who didn't share the dream that Martin Luther King talked about. Many, including then FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, called him a communist, an incendiary charge at the time. Some of their spiritual descendants now laud Dr. King's memory even as they stand in the way of common sense voting rights legislation. It was this truth that Nicole Hannah-Jones delivered in Chicago. It must be said that some of the members of the Union League Club didn't even think she was fit to discuss Dr. King's legacy. I don't know who they thought they were or who they thought was qualified, but certainly Nicole Hannah-Jones was qualified. This is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist we're talking about here, folks. And I'm not saying that she wasn't qualified. Some of the members of this Union League Club, whoever they are, actually said this in emails. While we're on the subject, we must also point out that Dr. King was not universally beloved in the black community either. That's right. It may hurt. It may be inconvenient. And a lot of people may have forgotten it or weren't even born during that time. I was. I was a young teenager during Martin Luther King's time. I was like 16 when he was assassinated. And I have to tell you, there were black people, black folks, who didn't particularly care for Dr. King's methodology uh, or his philosophy of nonviolence. But proponents of the black power movement often called him an Uncle Tom, someone who stood in the way of real black progress by his refusal to engage in or sanction violence in the name of change for black people. There were others who favored legal challenges to segregation laws at the time, rather than nonviolent direct action, which was Dr. King's way. Now, in a time when so many weren't alive when he was, the importance of painting a holistic picture of his life and legacy is needed now more than ever. Kudos to Nicole Hannah-Jones for pointing this out. And finally, how does the Justice Department justify destroying a man's life, and then saying, oops, my bad. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Here's a question for you. Where does a person go 
to get their life back after it's been ripped to shreds? That's the question a nanoscientist and MIT professor named Gang Chen must be asking himself. Last week, the Department of Justice dismissed charges against him after admitting they could no longer meet their burden of proof at trial. In layman's terms, their case fell apart. Chen was charged with failing to disclose ties to the government of China. He was also charged with other offenses regarding his ties to China. Last month, the governor's case, the government's case that is, began to fall apart. And after a government expert on grant forms, because a lot of this centered on grant forms that uh, Chen had filled out, an expert on grant forms actually sat up and said that this particular situation made no sense. What do I mean by made no sense? That expert asserted that Gang Chen never had to make those disclosures, the disclosures that the government charged him with violating, that he never had to make those disclosures in the first place. Now, here's the rub. The U.S. government program to fight Chinese economic espionage is called the China Initiative. That's right, the China Initiative. And two elements of it are problematic. One, despite several convictions, none have been for spying. Two, almost all the people targeted are Chinese. There are some justified reasons for taking a hard look at this initiative and what it's accomplished, which is not much, to be perfectly honest. First, it's a Trump-era effort to stop the theft of intellectual property, mainly at colleges and universities. While that may be a laudable goal between Chen and University of Tennessee professor An Ming Hu, big mistakes were made. In fact, Hu was tried twice, once under Trump the second time under Joe Biden. The first trial ended in a hung jury, while the second resulted in who being acquitted on all charges. Now, what's interesting about this, unlike MIT, who supported uh, Gang Chen from the very beginning, put him on paid leave and backed him publicly, the University of Tennessee allowed access to whose records to the FBI without a warrant and suspended him without pay. That, thank goodness, has been rectified. But what are we to make of this? Is this Chinese profiling on the part of the Justice Department? Think this is just hyperbole I'm talking about here? I'd refer you back to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which we've talked about, by the way, in previous episodes. That remains to this day the only piece of U.S. legislation to bar entry to a race of people. To those who say that was a long time ago, keep in mind the act's exclusions were in place until 1941. Sad to say, these attempts at doing something about China by the government are feeble at best. And consider this, if China is such a sworn enemy of this country, why do we trade with our enemy to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars annually? And by the way, we import many, many more Chinese goods than we export goods, American goods, that is, to China. So why are we doing this? What sense does any of this make? Now, that's not to say that America and China 
uh, are going to get together by a fire somewhere and start singing Kumbaya. That's not going to happen. But to put together this initiative and then have it go so haywire. And these two individuals uh, are only the tip of the iceberg. I think they're still investigating like 20 other people, none of whom are being investigated for spying. Almost all of whom are Chinese. Uh, as a matter of fact, Gang Chen became a U.S. citizen in the year 2000. So is it trying to justify its existence, to justify its funding, this China initiative? It's been done before. Wouldn't be the first time. That's for sure. Now, the whole question of trade, that's a discussion for another day. But this China initiative should be scrapped if it cannot do any better than it has to this point. The lives of innocent people should not be disrupted as our government cuts corners to lock them up. It just makes no sense to me whatsoever. Before we leave you, we want to honor the two New York City police officers who were shot, one of them fatally, responding to a domestic call in Harlem. Jason Rivera was just 22, left behind a wife and family, and the wounded officer, Wilbert Mora, is 27 years old and he is fighting for his life. Mayor Eric Adams is right. This was an attack on the city of New York. And there is really no excuse for not getting guns off the streets, not just of New York, but of cities all over America. There are just too many guns in the hands of too many people who will use them to kill people, to kill innocent people, to take innocent life. So we honor Jason Rivera, condolences to his family, we pray for the swift rep uh, recovery, that is, of Wilbert Mora. And hopefully, we'll get more guns off the streets. And not just, again, in New York, but all over America. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.